You're listening to the AR-15 Podcast on the Firearms Radio Network. Welcome to the AR-15 Podcast. This is the podcast about your favorite black rifle. This show is for you if you're building your first AR or you've been building ARs for years. There is something we can all do to take our black rifle to the next level. Well, hello everybody again. We are here with a... New intro, uh, if you like it, uh, give us a thumbs up on Facebook or write us some email and uh, let us know what you think. Uh, our uh, newest uh, co-host, uh, the uh, I guess he's the, the freshman on the block, is uh, going the extra mile to make sure that we don't boot him off. So he uh, has uh, put together some uh, some good pieces there for you, so. Uh, we are starting here with uh, episode number 144 of the AR-15 podcast. And so, uh, you know, tonight uh, we're responding to a listener's request uh, on what things that you would put into a build catered specifically to home defense. And so JW and JD have put a lot of legwork into this, and uh, I think they've got some really good stuff put together. Um, but before we go too long, we want to rub it in that JW is going to have to take those strike fires uh, off of his various uh, weapons platforms and put them in boxes to a uh, lucky winner. So um, we want to let you know that we are continuing registration for our giveaway for the Vortex Spitfire 3 Power Prism Scope. And we are asking you, our listeners and fans, to nominate a veteran to receive that Vortex Spitfire. You can go to the link that is in our show notes, and you can also go to the Facebook page and uh, enter your favorite veteran there. And uh, we'll be giving away that uh, that optic uh, in a drawing that we will hold on Veterans Day. So that would be the three-power scope. Now, of course, the one-power scope that's currently sitting on uh, JW's uh, AK and he was uh, conspicuously absent during our AK show. It would have been very nice to see that there. But uh, there it is. <laughs> he is uh, really sad to see it go. And uh, we are going to ask you guys to help us out while we begin our registration for the giveaway of the Vortex Spitfire One Power Prism Scope. Um, because we're asking you, our listeners and fans, to nominate a first responder. So, J.W., what do you think when you hear first responder? Oh, I'm thinking the guys that aren't getting paid that much, but they are the ones that are showing up just about immediately uh, after you call 911 for help. Uh, so whether that's police, fire, EMS, um, sometimes they've got a badge, sometimes they've got a, a bag full of goodies to stitch you back together. Um, but that's I think that's the, the target audience for the, the one power giveaway. So nominate your favorite first responder to receive the Vortex Spitfire One Power Scope. And we're going to be giving away that optic on Thanksgiving Day uh, as a way to say thanks to all of our uh, fine men and women who serve in the law enforcement community, serve in the you know firefighting uh, community, and those that serve in all of the emergency medical services. Uh, we really want to have an opportunity to give something back to you. So, And you know what? If they were a veteran, too, then throw them in the three-power giveaway as well. That's right. They they might have a double whammy opportunity there. Yeah. I know a couple of those. 
So um, we're going to be uh, putting a link up in our show notes so that you can go and enter the one power uh, prism scope uh, drawing for a lucky nominated uh, first responder. And uh, we're also going to have a link up on Facebook for you to use as well. So once again, the three power is going to go up on Veterans Day and the one power is going to go up on Thanksgiving Day. So there you go. So, uh, JW, what do we have going on over at the Patriot Patch Company there? Well, it sounds like a whole bunch of the pre-orders um, are going out the door here very shortly. Um, I know there was a couple patches and T-shirts that they were doing some pre-orders on. There's actually a whole new line of new stuff uh, that Jake and the guys at Patriot Patch have come up with. Uh, there's a new In God We Trust patch. Uh, there's a whole bunch of new T-shirts. Um, I saw there's a AR-15 bolt patch. That one looked pretty nice. I haven't um, seen that yet. Yeah, I'll just check out patriotpatch.co, and uh, you'll see them right there at the top. All right. Well, guys, pay them a visit. We would enjoy the support. Everything helps. So let's see. You know, this is really one of those topics that I think kind of crests on the, the level of, you know, what optics you put on your gun and, you know, some of those other just nail-biting, you know, hair-splitting, you know, argument-inducing discussions. So mm-hmm. I think we're ready for this, don't you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. I think there's a whole lot of little sub subtopics here that we're going to get into, um, but the subject of picking something to fight for your home, uh, for the people in your home, uh, for... Uh, the place where you were hoping to just have a nice night's rest. Um, there's definitely some specific considerations that go into it. Well, let's start um, off um, with a couple of, I guess, fundamental understandings here. So we're not okay. talking um, zombie apocalypse sitting on the uh, you know second floor floor porch picking off your you know neighbors so they don't crash through your fence kind of home defense. We're talking about within the four walls of your home, someone has crossed a threshold who should not be there. Not that there isn't going to be some crossover, but <laughs> we're talking inside the house, uh, wake up out of bed, hear a crash, that sort of thing. All right, all right. And so um, we're assuming kind of a standard American family, you know, mom, dad, 2.5 kids, a dog named Boo, and all that other stuff, right? Sure, sure. So we have some basic considerations about safety, uh, where we are going to be able to effectively fire the weapon, and in certain circumstances we would have considerations on uh, not being able to adequately bring the rifle to bear. So um, we'll kind of include that as a, a part of our, our baseline discussion as well. Are there any other things that you think are important when we're talking about what we define as home defense. I think you just about covered it there. Um, I think most often this is going to happen in the evening. Um, so there's going to be some considerations that come from that, but it doesn't mean you can't employ it during the daylight either. Okay. Okay. So what do you think the benefits of a carbine are versus a pistol? Now, are we talking like a standard pistol or an AR pistol? Um, I was thinking more, okay, do you have a, a handgun that you carry on your hip during the day? Do you just take it off, leave it on your bedside table, or put it in one of those uh, fingerprint lock boxes or something like that? Is that going to be enough in the house? 
uh, or do you want to step up to having a full-on carbine, uh, a rifle set up with an AR? Um, because there's definitely some advantages to having the AR. Um, one of them that comes to mind is accuracy, um, especially under stress. The carbine something that is very pointable, um, something like a handgun, uh, is you're going to be moving it around a little bit more under stress, whereas a carbine you can really hug into and put on target uh, maybe a little more reliably. Um, it's definitely got more capacity. Um, sure, you can have 33 rounders in your in your Glock, um, but you can have a 60 rounder or a 100 rounder in your <laughs> AR. Yeah. Or you could get a belt-fed upper if you want and run a whole belt. Um, I, I think you definitely get a little more capacity out of the AR. Um, size, uh, is a consideration for maybe plus and minus. It's gonna kind of be obvious just sitting there next to your bed. Um, we're, we, we could talk about different ways to secure it. Um, but having the large size, maybe that could help if things got really close and hand to hand and, uh, a rifle isn't necessarily something that can be pulled right out of your hands. You got a good grip on it and, uh, say it malfunctions or you run out of bullets. Um, it's a big, kind of heavy, blunt object, uh, that you could probably use to pretty good effect. Yeah. Well, you know, pistol weapon's fun, but, you know, I, I imagine when you start swinging away with a pistol, someone might take that out of your hands. Whereas, you know, smashing somebody in the, Forehead with a buttstock has been a pretty traditional, I don't know, peace-inducing mechanism, you know, throughout, you know, armed aggression or the history of armed aggression. So, yeah, there's nothing like a hot muzzle break against the face. <laughs> so, with that in mind, as some of the kind of the the precursor benefits here, we're going to just go down the route of the carbine discussion and kind of give a general outline of, you know, some of the things that I think go to the top of our list when we're trying to pick out what to put into it, when we're trying to pick out our pieces for the build, what is it that is going to drive that? And and I put down, um, well, JD put it down, or I mean JW put it down, and, and I kind of modified it. But it's that idea of having a weapon that is familiar to you. You know, JW pointed out that if you're, a lefty and you're used to using a left-handed, um, tricked out rifle, having your bone stock right-handed, you know, controls is going to be unfamiliar. Right. One of the good things about training to run a gun right-handed or with regular old right-handed controls as a lefty is that, yeah, you can pick up a standard carbine and be comfortable. Um, if you've, learn to depend on your fancy tricked out three gun rig that is spit shined and locked up in the, in the vault in the basement. Um, and you've got something a little more mil spec next to the bed. You should probably spend some time behind it before trusting your life and, uh, feeling like you might be fumbling around in the dark. Um, you need to be comfortable manipulating it, uh, in the light and the dark. Uh, when we, did checks before doing night runs uh, in some of the shoe house classes. Uh, it's not like you're turning on your light to go look and hey, did a did a round go in the chamber or am I ready to go here? You got to do the same same uh, make ready procedures in the day and the night 
and those don't involve looking at things. Um, so, I mean, other than maybe your red dot to make sure it's on, right. um, you need to be comfortable manipulating your, your carbine without having to, um, take a long time and make a bunch of noise and turn on all the lights. Um, you gotta be comfortable with that rifle. And you know, I think it goes back to that old adage, and I'm sure that everybody's heard it time and time again. It's the idea that when you're under stress, you're gonna fall back on your training. Well here, you're gonna fall back on what you know, what you're familiar with, and so you either have to use what you're familiar with, or you have to become familiar with what you're gonna use. So, the next item I think is manipulation. Um, when we talk about home defense, we're not talking about sitting in a trench with, you know, 400-yard lines of fire all around. We're talking about your living room with all of the furniture that your wife picked out. You're talking about hallways with carpets or doohickeys in the middle of the floor that your kids left behind. You're talking about all of these things in the environment that you're going to be moving through and basically um, transitioning your weapon through. You need to be comfortable with the the rifle's ability to move through that space in a way that isn't going to get you bound up, get you uh, off balance or in a position where you're going to be unable to effectively bring the weapon to bear should you need it. So, so maybe a 22-inch stainless bull barrel with Atlas Bipod isn't necessarily what you're going to be turning corners with. Probably not. Um and, you know, these are things that I think are very dependent on a situation. They're very dependent on the individual. You know, if you have some guy that's, you know, 275 pounds of, you know, broad-shouldered linebacker, he's probably not moving through that house very gingerly as it is. But you add a weapon to that, which is basically an extension of him, you know, as he transitions from room to room, that's going to make it harder. Now, if he is an NFL football player, he probably has a house much larger than the rest of us, and so he probably has very, very huge dimensions in his rooms, and he's not quite as concerned. So, you know, I think that that's going to be something that is really situationally dependent, and you're going to have to figure out what your situation is and define for yourself what what you need to be able to do to safely and effectively move through a home. Right, and we're not necessarily going to go into all the details of, of a home defense plan, uh, but it's something you got to think of. Are your kids on the same floor as you? Are your kids on a different floor? Uh, if you hear something or if the alarm goes off, are you, are you moving to the kids? Um, are you all meeting at one location? Are you going to grab the kids, bring them up to the master bedroom, shelter in place there? kind of harden the area and uh, just watch the door while you're waiting for the cops to come. Um, you got to be thinking about that. Is it, are your kids of a size where they're going to be walking with you or are you going to have to carry your kids? Um, can you carry your kids while you also have a rifle? Is that rifle slung? Um, is it a one point sling kind of bouncing around when you're climbing up the stairs? Uh, or is it a two point that can kind of cinch up a little close to your body? Um, all things to think about, and uh, it, it depends on your structure. It depends on your how your family's set up. Uh, depends on how much you love your children. Depends on all sorts of things. So, 
I think the next. I don't, I don't think you caught that joke, right? <laughs> yeah, I caught that joke. Okay. Okay. Yeah, my wife was pulling in the driveway, so I was more concerned about whether she'd be hearing it, so. Okay. Um, you know, visual enhancements are something that I think is a part of this discussion. And, and really, you know, we've touched on a few of these topics in, in, you know, real recent episodes. So I think we have some fresh perspectives on it. But when it comes to the general idea that we laid out, then more often than not, this is the kind of thing that's going to be happening at night. Um, if that's the case, what are you going to do to allow yourself to be able to identify your target? Are you turn the lights on? Okay, would be my first recommendation. Um, there are a number of schools of thought, and I think that you're just going to have to go with the school of thought that you adhere to to figure out what your plan is. Now, I'm pretty sure JW is going to throw on his night vision goggles and you know, move through the house without notifying anybody that he's coming. But, you know, that's a that's a pretty substantial investment for I think a lot of the average guys that would be getting into an AR build for the purpose of home defense. You know, your first AR. We know that the third, fourth and fifth are going to come along eventually. But so, you know, are you going to get you know, a uh, a set of irons. Are you going to get a flashlight? Are you going to put lasers on it? Is it going to be a red dot? Are you going to turn on the lights? Are you going to have night vision? Are you going to put anything on to enhance it? Or are you going to leave it bone stock? All of these kind of enhancement philosophies, and I'm sure that's not even really an accurate term, but you have to be able to identify a target and know that it is a target that you can fire on. For Just like in any other situation, whether you're at the range or whether you're uh, a police officer, every round that leaves your gun, you're accountable for. You can assume that your full name, address, social security number, and the balance of your bank account is printed on every round and are completely up in the air if they don't go where you intend them to go. So knowing what you're firing at, um, I think, is going to be your primary concern. So we're talking lights, we're talking turning on the lights, we're talking if that doesn't work, if the power is out, if somebody's cut the power, you got to bring the lights with you. So that's where flashlights come in. Right. So, you know, I think that's a very big component of that. Um, you know, Unfortunately, is- there's been stories where, where neighbors uh, have walked into the wrong house, where uh, drunk boyfriends have stumbled into the house and... People have got shot that probably shouldn't have been shot. Um, so that's that's your first step is, okay, this is a situation where I need to be uh, getting the firearm involved. Okay, step two, is this a person or a threat that needs to be addressed ballistically? And that's that's a big decision that you got to make. So, you know, I think one of the things that, that JW and I always appreciate is the ease with which it is now to get a silencer. Uh, I don't think that it is quite as uh, difficult or, you know, I don't know how to describe it. It's just yeah, the not process a hasn't process changed, anymore. but the barriers that I think people have put up on their own yeah. are coming down through education, through um, 
all these manufacturers that are just at the cutting edge of technology. Uh, they're doing some really great marketing and they're explaining and walking people through the process better than ever. There's right. uh, easy ways an, to get it's trust. Not as There's intimidating as to, it used to be. Intimidating. Yeah, exactly. So you, you still talk to guys at ranges and, Oh, you must have a license for that. You must have this or that. And nope, just paperwork. So. So I think those are much more accessible mm-hmm. and so they can be considered as an integral part of a home defense build. And when you look at the price tag, I mean, the price tag of a silencer compared to the price tag of a fully automatic weapon, uh, you know, it's peanuts by comparison. And you're, in many instances, not going to spend all that much more for a silencer for your weapon than you would a scope for your weapon. So... I think that, or an optic, I think that it's a, it, it's something that you should really consider investing in because I think one of the key factors in, in this discussion is that you should avoid adding factors to, into your environment that are going to disorient you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know how many people get a chance to fire a rifle in their home without hearing protection, but it is deafening. Yeah, you can, we just talked about being familiar with your weapon. You can be as familiar with anything as you want until you get punched in the face yeah. or until you have a 5.56 five, round go off in the dark with no ear pro. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so, everything changes after you go deaf. Right. So just being able to eliminate that as a disorienting factor in your environment from your end is going to be a very big plus. And by the same token, um, just kind of in the sense that visual enhancement also includes it, but lights and lasers, I think, also can be mentioned from the perspective of something you can add that will create disorienting factors in your environment that will be used against a person in your home that shouldn't be there. Nothing like a light in the eyes to, you know, take someone off their... Uh, step for just a fraction of a second and perhaps long enough for you to take that calculation into uh, your thought process and decide that that is not someone that needs to be in your home. And you, would you call it a ballistic solution? Yeah, for sure. So having those kinds of things are uh, good. Better just to disorient them, better to keep yourself from being disoriented. And then I think the last piece is really the issue of complexity. You know, I I like some doodads on some of my rifles, and some of my rifles I like very, very minimalist. So I look at it from the perspective of complexity. If you minimize the number of decisions or choices that you must make to engage someone, a target in your home, I think you're doing yourself a few favors. Right, and there's so many different levels of this, whether it's Hey, I need to remove the rubber bikini from my aim point and then turn it on before it's usable. I mean, really? It's the one that you're going to be pulling out at a split second and you're setting yourself, yourself up to add another five or ten seconds to become effective. Um, make that sucker ready to go. If you are able to, uh, have it loaded and ready to go, do that. Um, don't add unnecessary s- steps um, before being able to engage uh, with that rifle. 
And, you know, yes, there are going to be a few basic complexities that you will have to deal with. Uh, your firearm is more than likely going to be unsafe. You're going to have to disengage that. And, you know, you just have to figure out what is the fewest number of complexities you need to be dealing with right then, right there. Single guy at home with uh, a partner who is uh, well-versed in what's going on and, and, you know, that could step into your shoes if she were required to and manipulate the firearm just as well, you're probably not looking at the same number of com- complicating factors as you would if you were that, you know, all-American family of, you know, two and a half kids and a dog named Boo. So uh, you, you're just going to have to figure out where all that leads you when you come to the process of deciding what to put into that build. But I think those, JW, are some pretty solid fundamental perspectives to view that rifle, don't you? Yeah, and the one thing I'd add on the complexities part is, yeah, there's some items that you can add to your build that will make your life easier or give you tools that otherwise you'd have to carry on a belt um, that you could, uh, in this case, put on a quad rail. Um, but you need to keep in mind that adding extra things that might affect the performance of the rifle, this this is not the rifle that you want to play around with or that you want to uh, test your new reloads in or anything that's going to affect reliability. This is not the one that you got on bargain basement clearance. This is uh, the gun that has been proven um, to be able to stand up to harsh conditions uh, that you've taken care of, that you have cleaned and lubricated, but then you fired a couple rounds to make sure you put it back together. Uh, this isn't the rifle to take any chances on. So, JW, you have really kind of... Um run the traps on the issue of ballistics. Why don't you take this next portion of our discussion tonight? Yeah, this is a subject that gets a lot of debate on the Internet um, because people have opinions and they, some people do some testing um, and they kind of read into those tests in different ways. They say, okay, well, if something goes through this many layers of drywall, then it's good or bad. Um, and so there's, there's a, a, Debate that still goes on as far as, hey, do you want a round that um, is heavier, that's going to expand, stay together, travel through a target, or something that's a little bit lighter that's going real quick, and as soon as it hits a target, it just explodes into a million little pieces. I think um, people nowadays tend to lean uh, in one direction, and it's towards the heavier expanding rounds, and that's because... First of all, of barrier-blind requirements um, towards uh, entering clothing, uh, other sorts of things that might be in the way um, so that rounds aren't deflected, aren't uh, blown up all over the place without having hit the target. Um, it's also an issue of ranges. Um, the rounds that are designed to fragment and explode all over the place, um, that typically happens after 50 to 100 yards. In these very up-close ranges, um, that round might enter, exit a bad guy, and then start expanding. Um, they are traveling 8, 10, 12 inches before that expansion occurs, and so you're just punching 22 caliber holes into um, the bad guy. Um, so something that's going to open up and expand uh, is probably going to do better for you. Um, the 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 big side of the discussion that people tend to go to is okay well what if i miss and it goes into the hallway and then through a 
uh, wall, through another wall, out the house, uh, into the neighbor's house. Um, and they say, well, rifle rounds just go forever. Um, when people do the testing with, say, a 9mm round, it's going to go further than the 5.56 because the 5.56 is small. It's catching all the little imperfections in the drywall. It's tumbling. It's starting to break apart. Something like a 9mm or 45 is actually going to just sail right through, and it, it could be even more of a risk. You talk about something like a slug from a shotgun. There's so much energy behind it, it's going to sail through your walls. Um, buckshot will go through the same drywall, but as it does so, it will expand dramatically rather than traveling in one fairly consistent direction. It will expand so much that it's really becoming a risk after it goes through that first wall. Um, so people, it seems like they're tending to lean more towards the heavier um, barrier blind rounds that are consistent, that they hit a bad guy and they do damage right away. Um and, and the discussion of, okay, what does it happen? What happens after you miss the bad guy and it goes through a couple walls? It, you're, you're going to have some liability issues either way because you have rocked off around into something that you shouldn't have. Um, so are you setting up yourself from your defensive position where you're firing towards something that you shouldn't be? Is it the kids room that is directly across the hallway, well, you probably shouldn't be rocking off those rounds. Um, is it, are you set up in an apartment complex um, where there's rooms all around you? I'm not really sure how you take care of that sort of situation um, because missed rounds are, you're at a huge liability at that point um, because they could be going into other people's property. Um, so I think the best way to not over-penetrate is to hit the bad guy. That round's going to dump a bunch of energy into the bad guy first, uh, and it may penetrate beyond them, but at that point it's dumped so much of its energy, it's it's not going to be as much of an issue. Um, so this is just one of those cardinal rules of know your target and what's beyond. Um, it's a tough one to consider in the real short timelines, the high energy, high um, high stakes decision-making process of a home entry. Um, but it's something that you got to be considering. You got to think about, okay, if somebody comes in this door, where am I going to be? Where might they be? What's behind them? Um, and kind of play out those, those scenarios in your house to see what the, what the ballistic, uh, consequences are of rounds flying, uh, in a certain direction. You know, as far as, go ahead. You know, I think the, the biggest difficulty that is brought to this discussion is that people want to oversimplify it to the point of a few tangible factors that go into play in determining what is the best. And I just don't think that there is a best. Mm -hmm. I mean... Yeah, if if you wanted to make sure you weren't going to punch through X layers of drywall, then you just run uh, simunitions or frangible rounds or something like that. But that's... That's not what you're trying to accomplish. You're trying to stop a threat from hurting you or your family. Right. And, you know... To achieve a certain level of lethality, that bullet's got to be flying a certain speed, and it's got to be carrying a certain amount of energy with it, and and there's consequences of that if you're not putting those rounds where they need to go. You know, the idea that you're going to be in your 
home defense situation in that it's going to, you know, turn into a gunfight like you're in the middle of a Scarface movie is, I think, unrealistic. Chances And it's are. one reason why I wouldn't recommend <laughs> using a machine gun for home defense. You know, well, we can, we can belabor all of the variables that go into play, but you know, I think you bring up the best point. You need to rely on your fundamentals to understand the the issues at play here. You know, what's your target? What's behind your target? You know, is it a viable target? And I think you just have to trust. And are that. you confident in your own abilities mm-hmm. to put rounds into that target? Right. I think you have to trust that just modern technology alone within that that band of options is going to be sufficient to do what you need done. And, you know, I think that really what it comes down to is you need to end the threat. And I think that happens a number of ways, not all of which result in someone being dead on your floor. And so to the degree that you can keep yourself safe, keep your family safe, and end the threat, these choices give you broader latitude because you don't have to worry about picking the singular best thing for the job. There might be many options available to you. As far as ammunition, there's a couple that people tend to recommend a lot. Hornady has the tap line. Uh, I think it's like tactical application, something or other. Um, there's a 75 round, or excuse me, 75 grain uh, round that is like a boat tail hollow point that yeah. is supposed to perform really well. They take some extra precautions in their QC on those rounds. They know that people are depending on them for home defense or for police applications. So they make sure every, every one of them goes bang. Um, that one's uh, definitely recommended a lot. If you're looking at something closer to like 55, 50 grain, even like 47 grain bullets, those are the ones that are running real fast and they're going to explode into a million pieces uh, when they hit a target. Um, I would avoid them. Uh, I'd go higher at the 65, 70, 75 grain bullets. Mm-hmm. Um, and sure, your, the twist rate on your rifle might not be perfect for the heavy bullet, but what are our engagement distances here? A lot less than 25 yards. Yeah. Um, I don't think the twist rate is going to be coming into that big of a, uh, a consideration. No, not in that short a distance. I think you're really talking about um, the projection of energy into your target. The other thing that comes into play is um, muzzle velocity and how running an SBR might affect that. Um, I know SBRs are, are really recommended for CQB, moving around tight quarters, doing all your nuclear submarine ops. Um, but it, it might be reducing the muzzle velocity to a point where that round isn't performing like it was designed to. Uh, if you're chopping off a whole bunch of barrel length and you're barely going over 2,000 feet per second with your 556, um, it might not be performing the way the the ammo manufacturers made it to. And so you should definitely take a look at that and see whether whether you're comfortable using that ammo or maybe you want to choose something a little different. Maybe we want to go uh, 300 blackout or something that can still deliver energy um, but with a shorter barrel length. You know, and that brings up a good point. I have heard commentators bring up uh, the 300 blackout in that role, comparing it to the 45 ACP. 
Mm-hmm. You have a projectile in the 45 that's about 230 grains, and if you're talking about a subsonic 300 blackout, it's 220 on average. I've seen it, you know, as low as I think 187 for a Gemtech subsonic, and I haven't seen much higher. But when you're talking about those ballistics, that's pretty substantial performance. I don't think most people would argue with the ability of a 45 to deliver some, you know, ballistic you know, consequences, uh, if it wasn't uh, brought to bear. So the 300 blackout having that going for it, add on top of that, that I think at a minimum you're talking probably an 8-inch barrel to maybe, you know, if you're dealing with a non-SBR, a minimum of a 16-inch barrel. And you're looking at far higher sight radiuses, far larger um, uh, application of that, force into the projectile, but it's not a rifle powder that is used in most of the loads or the load data that I've seen. It's pistol powder. And so that's something that I think is more geared towards that 16 and shorter inch barrel than opposed to the consideration of the 5.56 that may be bleeding off too much muzzle energy if you get uh, below 16. So, right. I think it's almost a different, um, application intent. Almost like if you look at police usage, um, <clears throat> when the, the teams that you see running MP5s, um, subcaliber submachine guns, it's not that one round of nine millimeter is going to put a guy down. The intention for those little sub guns is to put a whole bunch of rounds into a tight group because they, can rock them off quick because of the slow recoil. It's short bursts on target. Um, so, so stepping up from that to a full carbine, like you see most police departments having now, um, you can put down a bad guy with one or two rounds. Whereas with those subcaliber rounds, it's going to take you half a magazine into each guy to really be confident about what you're doing. Um, so you're definitely stepping up when you go to a, a rifle round. Survivability numbers are um, way higher for handgun rounds. Uh, it's like 60, 80% of people survive handgun rounds, um, where it's it's like the opposite of that for rifle. You're looking at 10 to 20% survival rate. So there's an effectiveness argument there, too. Absolutely. So, you know, I think you have a good point here, the, the very last point on this topic, and that is, that the best way not to overpenetrate is a wall is to make sure that the bad guy is between you and that wall, right? Mm-hmm. So what else can we take away from the ballistic side of this? Um, it'd be nice to run ballistic gel tests on your own ammo and on your own rifle, all that, but most of us really don't have the capability to do that. Um, so I would depend on the proven rounds like the Hornady tap, um, like some of the the heavy bonded bullets um, that are out there, manufacturers that you trust, that it's not just Joe Bob's reloads that you pick up at the gun shop or the uh, gun show. And um, make sure it cycles in your gun. I mean, you, you might feel bad buying this fancy self-defense ammo, just like for your handgun, and firing it off at the range. But you need to put a couple mags through your gun, make sure it feeds just fine, make sure you got a good box, good case of ammo, mm-hmm. and uh, 
don't be afraid to rip off a couple magazines to right. uh, make sure everything's kosher. Well, and that goes back to your comment about reliability. You know, if you're going to build a rifle that has uh, components that are tried and true and tested, make sure that your ammunition is. Yep. So we talked about all these gadgets that we like to throw on. Let's get a little specific. What are some things that are must-haves for this sort of a build? The f- the first one on my list is a sling, um, and that's not necessarily because I want to be slung all the time and I only shoot from a sling or anything like that. If the situation demands that I just grab a rifle and go, that's great. I'm not going to sleep in a one-point sling either. Um <laughs> But I want a sling on that gun because there might be situations where I need to use both of my hands uh, and not have a rifle in them. Right. I guess the advantage of going carbine rather than pistol in this case is maybe I'm not wearing a battle belt or maybe I don't have a inside the waistband holster on what I'm sleeping in. Um, so I can't just put that gun away. Say the police are responding and I still have that firearm. I can't just holster up and put my hands up. If I'm holding the carbine. So I gotta either put it down on the ground, uh, maybe it's slung up and I can just let it hang, my hands are free. Um, having that sling is gonna help you out. So whether you use it or not, I'd say that a sling of some sort needs to be on that gun. Absolutely. So you have here next a flashlight. And, you know, I think your counsel. Oh, my favorite. As bright as possible. So yes. what do you have here in terms of the, the models? Um, Kind of your dependable, a Scout, a Fury, an Inforce, WMLX. Um, it's all over Instagram now. You want all the lumens, and you want them now. Um, the flashlight is not... Uh, it's it's not for pointing things out. It's not for peeking around a corner and, hello, I'm over here, and then peeking around the other corner, and, hello, now I'm over here. It's It's for replacing the sun. It's dark. You can't see. For whatever reason, you haven't turned the lights on. So you turn the lights on at your gun, and that's with your very bright flashlight. So everybody out there that I've spent some time with and respect um, say that the argument of, oh, my gosh, all of my walls are covered in mirrors, and as soon as I turn that light on, I'm going to be blinded, and I'm going to curl up into a corner and cry because I won't be able to see because my flashlight is has too many lumens. Um that argument doesn't hold water, and you need as many lumens as possible on your gun. Now, I added that a strobe would be nice, too, but that's just me. I I would disagree, <laughs> because I I just don't need to be strobing. <laughs> I think a thousand lumens in your face is disorienting enough, and five rounds of 5.56 five, is even more disorienting. Yeah, I just want to point out that I don't think you were alive during the disco era. No. Um, so the next one. I, I don't need, I don't need to be doing disco while I got a <laughs> rifle in my hand. So a laser is another thing to have. Do you think that's okay. really a viable item to be carrying on your rifle? I mean, I know that well, some if, people. If the really... lights are out and you got the night vision on, then yeah, it's great. You can just be firing from the hip and you got that laser on target. It's fantastic. All right. All right. But, uh, as a sighting device, I think it's um, it's an okay backup. Uh, I wouldn't want to depend on it because maybe I can't see that laser. Maybe the batteries have died on that laser. I don't want to depend on it. Um, it. I think it's a good secondary, just like backup irons, just like backup anything else. 
um, under high stress, putting the bright laser dot on the bad guy, I think is, is something that could help you out under stress. Yeah. Well, and I was talking to someone the other day who, um, does a lot of training, not JW, but, uh, they began competing and talked about in that sudden rush to compete, they noticed that they weren't aiming. They were concerned with so many other things that they were not bringing the sights to bear. Mm. So, you know, I think to the degree that we're talking about a situation that, you know, is in terms of comparability, you're under stress, you're in an environment that you're familiar with, but you got things that you cannot control. Somebody in your home is, you know, already got you over the edge and your uncertainty about what's going to happen can, you know, make it even more difficult. So having something as a secondary measure that is really almost more intuitive than anything else out there, I think can be helpful. But I think mm-hmm. that it works more in that environment like you talked about, or you flip on the lights. And, you know, in that situation, yeah, yeah, I think it can be helpful. But I don't think that it's what you rely on. I think it's just something that you have there for its potential benefit, not for any actual benefit. And just like we were saying with the liability that's involved with rocking off rounds, um, if if the thing that you're going to be using to point your gun and tell you, yep, that's where the bullet's going to go, if it's something that costs seven dollars uh, and came from china maybe you shouldn't be depending your life on it mm. and maybe you shouldn't be trusting uh the accuracy of your weapon system on on something like that so if if you're gonna use it for a sighting system for the rifle um maybe make it a, a more significant investment yeah absolutely so i think the next four items as far as accessories are really more about that kind of um ability to manipulate a rifle through an environment and you know these aren't the things that that I ever had exposure to and I don't remember your rifle having any of them but they're basically the vertical grips the angled fore grips you know I think a lot of people like them I know that there are plenty of soldiers who are familiar with them and I know that they're a part of many builds so to the degree that having a vertical grip or the angled foregrip uh, hanging off of your rail uh, to give you uh, a different uh, control point as opposed to wrapping your hands on the uh, handguard uh, to drive your weapon, if, if that is what you're comfortable with, I think that those are good investments for you. You know, certainly, you know, I think everybody's tastes vary. But JW, what are your thoughts on those? Yeah, I like the, uh, the little short vertical foregrip. I got my BCM build here. Um, just got one of those KMR rails. And rather than holding, uh, the foregrip like a beer can, I more use it as like an index point, something to, uh, apply some pressure to and for my hand to know that, yep, it's right where it needs to be. It's on the light. And, um, so I like it. I, I, I don't get this big old, Honking one with a bipod built in or anything like that. Uh, it's just a nice, uh, small index point and, and it's something that I like to add to my builds. Now, what is your take on these shortened or personal defense weapon stocks? Um, I know that 
is it Troy that has one? Mm-hmm. EAA or EEA? I'm not sure who the other one is. Yeah, is one like up in New Hampshire or something like that? I know that um, LWRCI has one. Uh, theirs is the UIW, I think. I forget what exactly it is, but they had a they had a personal defense weapon in 6.8 on the cover of Recoil. Mm, the white one. Yeah. Yep. That stock is a very, very low profile stock. And I've got that on, on my SBR. Nice. So really, I think when it comes down to it, you can operate any carbine with that stock kind of not retract or fully retracted, not extended. And that's going to shorten up the rifle as opposed to having a, you know, 20 inch, you know, M15 or AR15 with a, you know, a2 buttstock on it, which isn't going anywhere. But you can also have something that is in that shortened or PDW range that's going to take another couple of inches off, and that's going to keep that rifle even further in. Of course, being able to use it in that environment with your stock not extended, can you do that? I don't know. I don't think I could. But if you have to swing around a tight hallway or, you know, slice the pie in an environment where you don't really have a whole lot of room to move around... Maybe it can add something to it. Um, what do you think, JW? Yeah, I think it it would play more into something that you carry around in your car with you or that you need to conceal in the home. Um, having the stock be able to fold up real tight, um, I don't think plays into the actual usage of it so much. It's more of the carrying it around, hiding it somewhere, um, I think it's going to be tough to actually get off rounds when it's hugged up close. Well, actually, I've got an MP5 here, so I don't shoot it much collapsed um, because I'd be up so tight. Um, it's doable, and I can still see the sights and everything, um, but it's just not as um, as practical. So it's more like this is the the carry configuration, and when I'm actually shooting it, the stock's coming out. So... I think a PDW stock would be nice for in the car um, or if you're hiding it some somewhere in your house that's a little tighter. Um, but for actual employment, I'd be pulling that stock out. Now, on the last one, comfortable grips. What do you think of when you're talking comfortable grips? What's, what's most comfortable for you? Um, do you like over-molded, hard plastic, wood? I don't know. I guess a little bit of rubber, kind of the basic rubberized Magpul ones are on most of my guns. Um, Do you like that original? You know, there's some that are a little bit more vertical, some that are kind of have a little more rake to them. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm not too picky about them. See, I think that it is important to make sure that if you're going to build the rifle for that purpose, that it actually fulfills the purpose based on what you can do with it, what your needs are, what your skill is. So yeah, I think the ones that are raked back a little more might be more comfortable on the bench or in the prone, mm-hmm. whereas the ones that are tend a little more towards vertical might be better for upright standing uh, firing positions. Right. So I think that's a good run of accessories. Is there anything in there that you can think of that we didn't cover? I guess just making sure that however you set up your sling, um, that you've done that before, that you've moved it into a firing position, dropped it back down to a sling, put the sling on and off. Uh, it's not something that you've got to 
throw over your body and then clip back into the gun and have this whole procedure to actually get slung up, something that's quick that you're comfortable with and that you've actually done a couple times. Um, and it's the same with all the other gadgets and grips and things on your gun. Um, it's not like you, you want to bolt something on and then put it next to the bed. Take it to the range, run it, make sure it's tightened down, and uh, it's not going to be a liability uh, when, when you're depending on it. All right. So why don't you take sighting over? Sighting. I think red dots are a great option um, because you don't need light on the gun to be able to see them. Uh, if you're looking through iron sights, um, sometimes you need some splashback of light to be able to actually find them, to know that, yes, I'm looking through the aperture at the front post. Um, they might be a little tougher to pick up, whereas a red dot that you've got cranked up most of the way, you're going to find it. Um, whether you've got flashlights on, whether you don't, um, I would lean more towards a red dot, something that's always on that... Either you leave on and it's the design that, hey, you can give it a year or two before you need to change the battery, or it's uh, in a configuration where it's just one click and it's good to go. Um, don't set yourself up where you've got to twist it or unlock this or that or screw something on or off to get it going. Um, set yourself up to, for success so there's as few steps as possible to get it in the fight. Um Otherwise, yeah, backup irons are a good idea uh, for when that battery does die um, because you might not be bringing this gun to the range all the time. Um, have you played around with irons that have tritium in them or anything like that? You know, I have seen a number of options. At this point, I'm really not satisfied that there are well-tested time-tested options for rifles, uh, for the AR rifles yet. I mean, when it comes to pistols, any day of the week. But, you know, I am more comfortable with the idea of having a red dot on my rifle than I am trusting that I'm going to be able to rely on whatever the sight post du jour is. And, you know, I would think that if it was something that had that same degree of comfort uh, from the perspective of the manufacturers, you'd have all of the standard tritium manufacturers just pumping them out left and right like they do pistol sights. Right. Um, I guess I would avoid magnification because of the contact distances we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> even with a both eyes open sort of concept with a ACOG, it's a little much uh, in the house to have three or four power. So I would steer clear of that and just go to a fixed one power, um, like the Spitfire or a red dot that is just a projected dot um, through a clear tube. Um, the thing that I've encountered with tritium um, illumination is that, yeah, if everything's totally dark, it'll the reticle will glow and... Yeah, you can see the reticle just great, and that's cool for looking at in a dark bathroom. But if you're going to be IDing the target, you need to light them up. So you light them up with a flashlight. That light projects onto the target, but it doesn't necessarily bounce back to you and that light-gathering tube that the the tritium has. Um, 
so the the reticle actually gets washed out, and so then you just depend on whatever ground glass is there. Um, if it's something like an RMR that's a um, like a tritium versus like a, a non-battery RMR that's just tritium and fiber, um, sometimes that that reticle will disappear because you're not getting enough light bounced back. Um, on my the red dot on my bigger Glock is the adjustable. LED RMR. Um, I find myself turning it up almost brighter at night than I do during the day because my target typically is a white piece of paper that I'm lighting up with 500 lumens. And so if my red dot wasn't turned up bright or if it was just on auto, then the dark that's around it wants that light to, wants the red dot to be turned way down and it just gets washed right out with the flashlight. So just cause it's dark, doesn't mean you need to have your red dot turned all the way down. Crank it up and um, put lots of light on target, and it should be a pretty good balance. Um, but I, the idea of tritium is is great that you don't need batteries that you'll be able to see it at dark in the nighttime. Um, but once you put a flashlight into play, sometimes that that'll mess with you. The other thing that comes into play um, at very close ranges here with different sighting systems is your sight offset the height over bore that that optic is is riding at. Um, if you are zeroed at 50, if you zeroed at 25, when you're up close at 5 or 10 yards, um, your bullet's going to be hitting a couple inches below whatever you're aimed at um, by the difference that the optic is from the barrel. Um, when you get out 50 yards, you'll have intersecting points, uh, but up close, you're going to have basically the distance between the optic and the, and the bore. Um, so you need to consider that. If you're putting a target, um, if you're putting your dot on target, those rounds are going to be falling low. So practice up close, uh, whether it's uh, paper targets up close. Get a feel for that, that you quickly need to put the red dot a little bit higher than you think um, to get those rounds where you want. And so that's something that, especially in a high-stress situation, if it's like a training class in a shoot house, um, you're thinking about a million other things, you completely forget about sight offset. And so you need to keep reminding yourself of that and build it into your training regiment so that when you are engaging things up close, you're considering that because a couple inches can make a difference um, when you're putting them into a target that is is bearing down on you and threatening your life. So what's your last point here on this? It, on the sighting? It sounds very familiar. I think I've heard you say this before. It's turn on the lights because <laughs> you can't use a sight. It's great you have a red dot floating on a black field, but you you, you got to be able to see what you're shooting at. So whether it's your big, bright, weapon-mounted light or whether it's the switch that's next to your bed that lights up the room, turn on the lights. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any problem with making it as easy as possible for you to do the job you need to do. And I don't know that you're advantaging anybody else by doing so. But certainly you can put yourself at a disadvantage by not doing so. Mm-hmm. So what are some of our other considerations here? Um, we've kind of mentioned a couple of these things. Size of the rifle, um, the pluses and minuses of, of going SBR, um, especially if you're going to... 
throw a suppressor on it. Yeah. That's going to lengthen the gun. It's going to make it heavier out front. So maybe going SBR makes a little more sense. But let's take um, that SBR issue up. I mean, obviously in this, at this time, the AR pistols have a really deep foothold. There are mm-hmm. probably a lot more people that have an AR pistol with one of the paddle stocks or one of the uh, SIG stocks than, than the SBR owner. I, I would just tend to believe that that's probably more likely the case. Do you mm-hmm. think that that SBR or that, that pistol configured AR with one of those alternative stocks is going to put you in a position to have the same utility that an SBR? I think it would if you continued the rest of the build in the same direction. If this was just a five to seven inch flamethrower, right. then maybe not. But if it's a serious build that has everything except for the tag stamp and you've got a, a arm brace on it instead of a stock, I, I can't really fault you for that. I'm sure there's, there's reasons you haven't gotten out and dealt with the paperwork to get the stock and I'm not going to fault you for that. You know, I think that Really, in that situation, there's some gray area that I think a lot of people would talk about. I think we're talking about shouldering something that shouldn't be shouldered. I don't care if you shoulder it off your forehead. Yeah. I mean, well, the somebody's coming is, into your house, mm-hmm. you do what's comfortable to, to save your life. Yeah. And, you know, I live in a unique state. I think that there are a great many things that protect us. Um, here, but I'm pretty sure there are some jurisdictions where even if it was self-defense, if you crossed some firearms law threshold, they might throw the book at you for something besides the fact you killed a guy. And so, I don't know, what, what do you think, JW? Is that something that, that people need to just generally... I mean, I guess people would say about? the same thing about using a silencer, that, oh, no, he's using this lethal hitman device that's he's trying to sneak around his house and execute the guys that came in. Yeah, I just the want to media know can paint it however how, they want to paint it. I, I want to know exactly though how much more lethal it is with a silencer. And how can it be an execution if he wasn't on his knees and you didn't shoot him in the back of the head? You know, I I'm just wondering. But yeah, I mean I I mean people say the same thing with um using different kinds of ammunition that mm-hmm. oh he used the extra lethal ammo. It's like, well, yeah, because my life was threatened and I needed to stop that threat as quickly as possible. Then, I don't know. I'm- yeah, it might help to use the same ammo that your local police department uses. Um, but I think everyone who comments things like that on the Internet have a tough time finding um, legal references for where that has come up in court. Yeah, I, I think that's less of a deciding factor in any criminal case than the facts of how it is that you came to shoot somebody dead. Those are usually much more critical facts. Oh, so you invited your your daughter's boyfriend over for a beer and ended up shooting him because he was a home invader? Yeah, no. 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 Go to jail. But, you know. um, I don't know. I I think that there's a lot of angst on uh, some of these things. If you're really that angst-ridden, call someone that practices criminal law in your neck of the woods and ask them some pointed questions. If you 
you know, buy an hour of a guy's time so that you have a comfort level, that's not such a bad place to be, is it? Being much more comfortable that you can use what you've built the way you think you can, uh, or at least being set on the right course if you can't use it the way you think you can. I think all good points. So, you know, I think your third point here and other considerations is one that really kind of has always been kind of at the forefront of my mind, and that is the safe directions of fire. You know, I I think of my house in terms of, you know, in what directions am I going to be able to engage somebody and not have to worry about where my family is? You know, I think, uh, you know, it's like the, the guys on a three-gun match. They know the 180-degree rule, right? It's an automatic DQ. But it's this arbitrary boundary that is drawn for them, and they just adhere to the rule when they're competing. I think mm-hmm. you have to have that sense in your own home of where those safe areas are at any given point. And, you know, the 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 thing that makes me uneasy, that keeps me awake at night, is what do you do when somebody gets between you and a loved one? These are these are tough questions, but I think these are questions that you need to really start putting some mental horsepower through if you're going to understand how you are really going to engage um, someone in your home that shouldn't be there, and you know go through the steps of taking their life. These are not you know, whimsical or simple you know decision processes. These are very serious and very heavy, and I think that it bears the investment of your time and energy to work through those things long before you ever have to worry about it, dealing with the aftermath of those things. One point here that I listed um, that we covered with silencers um, <clears throat> is the noise issue. Um, you can combat, the, combat that with a can. You can also combat that with a set of ear pro that are hanging right next to wherever your rifle is. Um, a nice set of electronic hearing protection could give you a leg up on whoever's stumbling around your house uh, because it gives you superhuman hearing, um, but it also protects your hearing uh, in case some rounds do get fired off. Um, so I, I can't see how throwing on a set of electronic muffs could do you any harm at all. No. Um, I think it's a great idea to have them close by. And so what is your last point here? Um, I guess locks and safes. Uh, we haven't really covered how to secure your rifle. Um, there's a bunch of different options out there, whether they're racks that hang underneath the frame of your bed, um, whether it's a locking assembly that goes straight on your wall, maybe behind a curtain or inside your closet, uh, behind your bedroom door when that door is kind of cocked ajar that covers up the rifle that's uh, right behind it. I think there's some great options uh, for securing the rifle, uh, whether it is from children or whether it's from visitors to your house that you don't want walking off with stuff. Um, it's it's a consideration. You don't want to just leave your rifles uh, loaded and laying around the house. Um, but I think the, the goal isn't to child-proof the guns. Um, you need to more of gun-proof the children. Uh, the... There's no lock that's going to be more effective than fully training your kids to be safe around firearms. Um, So that needs to be the first step if you're introducing guns into a home with children or vice versa. Maybe you're a a home full of guns and you're considering introducing children to it. Um, 
training those kids to know how to act and what to uh, maybe keep their hands off of uh, when they encounter firearms, I think is going to go a lot further than getting a fancy lock system that is just going to be a challenge to them uh, if they aren't educated well enough that they're going to figure out how to open that sucker up. So you really got to start with teaching them the basics and teaching them the respect uh, that firearms deserve, uh, especially when they're in your home, when they may or may not be loaded and uh, when they might be in, uh, in your bedroom or in your hallway or uh, very accessible to, to you and your loved ones. You know, I'll, I'll add to that my personal experience as a third grader. Um, you know, my father took the time, you know, that was the 70s. So he took the time to educate me about firearms, you know, because it was okay to have a firearm back then. And while I was that parent's nightmare, the kid that gets into his dad's closet and pulls down the pistol, I will tell you that if I was going to show off, and that's what it was, I was a third grader showing off to a buddy. I pulled the pistol out and I opened the cylinder. And I told my buddy, these are always loaded. You always check. You never hand a pistol to somebody with the cylinder closed. Now I'm in third grade telling a kid this as we're kneeling in my dad's closet looking at this revolver, which (laughs) I guarantee you if my father had found me at that moment, I would not be here today. But he didn't. And at the same time, both me and my friend are here today. So. Because he took the time to lay that groundwork with you beforehand. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, I, I think that, JW, right, if you put a lock on that thing, it's only going to delay your child. They're going to figure out someday, somehow, a way to get to it when you are not paying attention. So you can turn a blind eye lock them up in a safe, and wait until the day that they get at them, which I think will always happen at some point. And without that foundational education, they're not going to know what to do with what you have in your gun safe. So you have to start with some training. But I would counter that with also knowing that up to a certain point, children have absolutely no ability to mind you or avoid impulse control. So you have to know your children... You know, prior to a certain age, they're just not going to pay attention. So you you impose the stricture on them of having rules and protections in place, knowing that at that age, they're not going to mind you, but they're not going to be able to figure out how to combat your protections. So when they cross that threshold of being able to get at or get into what you have, you better have laid down the groundwork, or I really think that you may be having to experience uh, things that no parent should experience. So there you go. We're going to end the show on a very happy note then. So, um, you know, I think there is one thing that I, I want to add. It goes back to one of the original things. Uh, I don't think there is a best. You know, if this is the choice you make, this is the choice you make. That's okay. Live with it. Embrace it. But really, spend the time and energy to work it out. JW, final thoughts? All sounds good to me. There's there's more than one way to uh, shoot a bad guy. So <laughs> make sure you give it some thought rather than just pulling something out of the safe and standing it up next to your bed. Uh, give it some thought. Know what you're going to feed it with. Um, know where you're going to be pointing it in the house. And uh, don't be afraid to clear it out. 
and run around the house every once in a while in the dark. Um, it's a little educational and it's a lot of fun. So, absolutely, uh, g- give it a run or two. Well, all right, guys. So uh, we're going to call that the end of our uh, main topic tonight. So, moving on to the Otis Technology giveaway. Uh, we want to remind you all that the fine folks at Otis Technology have sent over a mountain of rifle maintenance tools and cleaning kits for the AR-15 and AR-10s. We've been tasked with giving them away, and we want to ask you to watch for the special posts on Facebook to get a chance to win some of these awesome products made by Otis Technology. So we're going to be giving away a complete MSR cleaning kit and either 5.56 or 7.62 in the middle of each month up until Christmas when we will give away a complete Otis Technology Elite cleaning system to one lucky listener. So during the alternating weeks, when we're not giving away those things, we'll be giving away a host of Otis tools and cleaning supplies. So this week's winner is Casey Fowler. So Casey Fowler, we're going to reach out to you and let you know that you have won, hoping that you will get back with us. We still have a backlog of a few listeners that haven't gotten back to us, so we're going to be pounding on your Facebook doors to let you know that uh, you're the winner of our drawing. But, uh, you know, JW, the the mountain is not quite a mountain anymore. It's dwindling quickly with all of the, the stuff that we've sent out, and I'm a little saddened by that. Oh, it's a good thing. <laughs> all right, I guess if you can... I'm, I'm the one that's going to pull these nice vortexes off my rifles and box them up. That's right. Okay, I can suck it up if you can. Let's hop into some feedback here. Um, I got a, a nice long one from Jack. Uh, he says, that already receiving lots of great entries to the Nominate a Vet Vortex giveaway. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, that was not Jack. That was, that was us. Here. That was your response to Jack. No, that was that was us just informing the listeners. There's Jack. Oh, that's right. That's me saying, hey, guys. Thanks for all the entries. Keep them up. We told you about it at the top of the show. Here it is again at the end. Um, there's been some cool uh, comments on the post in addition to the actual entries through that uh, form. Um, so keep that up. Um, we really appreciate the stories that you've been sharing with us. Um, Jack's comment uh, was, A discussion of AKs on an AR-15 podcast is totally appropriate, if only to offer some contrast to the AR platform. As an owner of both, I can appreciate both systems and the pros and cons. That being said, I wanted to point out an issue AK aficionados observe all the time. AR-loving Americans often like to drop 400 to 600 bucks on a cheap IO AK or beat-up Wazer with candid sights and then compare it to their Noveski or Day and Defense AR race guns. No wonder there's such a disparity. It's a really good point. Reed, I'm no attorney, but maybe this won't be a terrible analogy. I'm trying to pick between purchasing a sedan and a pickup truck. So I test drive a Kia Forte and then a Super Duty King Ranch F-250 with every option. This is what Americans do when they're running a subpar AK uh, versus a race gun. Why then are we supposed, are we surprised when the Super Duty outperforms the Kia? After this, quote, test drive, we erroneously con- conclude that pickups are inherently superior to sedans when in ra- reality they've thrown in a bunch of extra variables. Anyway, thanks for the entertaining show. Uh, your show follows me on my soul-crushing commute, as well as when I'm chopping vegetables for dinner. Uh, I really appreciate that analogy, Jack. Uh, that makes a whole lot of sense to me. 
And I think a lot of comparisons get made between real fancy ARs and real bottom of the, uh, bottom of the barrel AKs. Now, now, I'm, I'm curious, Jack, when you said read your no attorney, but maybe this won't be a terrible analogy. Does that mean that attorneys always make terrible analogies? I'm just, just wondering. <laughs> Thanks for writing in, Jack. We appreciate the feedback and that's a great perspective. I think it really is a good point to be had. So, uh, our next one is from Mike Kyle. I believe this came in off of Facebook and is really, um, kind of an interesting point here. He says, Hey guys, I have an $800 to $1,000 budget and want to build a 9mm SBR. He says, I never built a pistol cal AR, so needing some help with a parts list. Have you guys done a pistol cal podcast? Uh, let's see. We did one in episode 120. Mm-hmm. But you know, I don't know that we talked about building one. I think we talked yeah, about true. a pistol caliber AR in terms of whether it's a viable choice because people yeah. typically consider it was more of a SHTF end of the world mm-hmm. sort of discussion. We talked about the benefits of uh pistol caliber carbines. Um so I think that's definitely a great great show for us to dig into. I know my buddy Corey at CDS Arms who we've had on before has done a number of builds and he's pretty familiar with some of the new options that have come out as far as dedicated Glock compatible lowers and things like that. Um, so I think that'd make a, a good show here in the near future. You know, Mike, uh, we will endeavor to get that in the lineup so we can talk about how to actually build one. Um, and, and, you know, I think that, uh, if uh, you can get them, why don't we get Corey on? Yeah, for sure. All right. Charlie Foxtrot here says, uh, hey, thanks for the podcast. Currently planning my second build, more of a DMR-ish precision rifle. Um, he says, I think I can tackle it based on what I've learned. Um, how about a show comparing and contrasting all of the build tools or holders uh, when you're putting together an upper? Sounds like he's wanting to dive into rather than just picking a, a complete upper off the shelf, uh, he's wanting to put it all together by himself. Um, so he's looking for a show on some of the tools that help make that possible, make that a little bit easier, make sure you're going to be putting together something that's accurate, that's safe, um, that, uh, plays into that DMR, uh, precision sort of setup. You know, I think that would be another great show. Charlie, we're going to use your idea for another great show. <laughs> hey, thanks for writing in, Charlie. We appreciate it. And, uh, our next piece of feedback is from Tom G., uh, Tom is a frequent participant and he writes in, uh, suggested we go into different POUs and we started, hmm. So this is, uh, oh, kind of my summary of the conversation that, uh, you had with Tom. Yeah. Um, he mentioned kind of going into specific, uh, purpose builds. We started that off with the SPR show. So that was great. Um, he also mentioned wanting us to look into alternative calibers. Um, I'm really interested in doing one on more of the long range calibers and builds, things that competitors are using. Um, they're really cranking up the BCs to fight wind. Um, they're really loading these suckers hot uh, and using some kind of wacky wildcats. Um, so I want to do a show like that. Uh, I think, I think Tom would be interested in some of those alternative calibers. Absolutely. 
and that pause there was my confusion and JW stepping in to save me as he, he, he deconstructed what I was trying to figure out here. It was Tom speaking in the third person about his references. So, okay. So let's see. Sean Redmond says, have any of you guys had a chance of handling the new Magpul PMAG D60 60 round drum? Now what should people be looking into before the 2016 presidential election? Prices seem to jump on ammo magazines, lowers, et cetera, during election years. Um, I have seen the review on the Guns and Gear, uh, our podcast, uh, about, uh, product reviews and they have a, a little blurb on that. I don't know which episode it was, so we may have to throw that into the show notes later, but, Yes, I think, uh, staff has had, uh, hands on it back in January. I personally. Yeah, the last time I took a look at it was at shot in person. Um, we're still waiting for them to ship. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Everybody has them delayed on back order or, yeah, not in yet. Don't know when they'll be in. So hopefully they'll be shoot, they'll be soon enough. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's a viable option, especially when you're down, maybe running on a bipod. Um, because it doesn't hang down uh, as far and you still get 60 rounds. Um, for something that you might want to carry on a plate carrier or on a belt, um, mag pouch, I'd really lean more towards the Surefire 60 round mag because it's the traditional, um, ergonomic shape. Uh, it's just fatter and a little bit longer. Right. Um, so either go 60 or 100 rounds from Surefire, um, for that sort of purpose, but, Having a drum's kind of nice. I just don't know how I'd carry it when it wasn't in the gun. Yeah, don't you? What do what the Russian drums come in? Isn't it a pouch that hangs off your a strap? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Throw them in your cargo pants. <laughs> so as far as uh, anticipating where to go with what politics might do to the industry, you know... Uh, I don't want to raise an indelicate issue, but after what happened in the Northwest, have you seen any large jumps in any of the major uh, Everything seemed pretty stable to me so far. Um, I think the last little scare was on the green tips, um, but that's been about it. seems like lowers are are still pretty cheap. You can get some good deals um, from some of the resellers when they run sales. You know what I kind of suspect? I kind of suspect that the some of what people perceive as flagging sales um, are not so much flagging sales as much as they are the equilibrium of an overabundance of exuberant um, entrepreneurs uh, basically having to face the fact that there's too many of them to compete effectively and margins are being cut too tight. So... Mm-hmm. I've seen, I've seen a number of smaller companies merge. I've seen a number of larger companies buy out smaller companies. I think that there's some, um, brand consolidation. There's some, uh, attempts to eliminate competitors in certain markets. This is all good for us because it just means that they're strengthening the companies, the bigger the companies, the, more likely they are to have uh, pretty consistent supply chains and which means they'll have pretty consistent uh, products uh, to deliver to retailers. But I think there's also the sense that everybody has been scared 
for eight years or six years, however long it is. And so everybody's kind of stocked up and nobody's going to go out and, you know, blow it out on a, you know, uh, weekend at the range doing a, you know, wacky minute and, you know, everybody empty their, you know, ammo pouch kind of thing. So I don't know. I think maybe we're kind of at a stabilized place here where, I mean, it might really take some dramatic political efforts to uh, affect our rights before prices would be impacted. Do you, do you get yeah, that President sense? O- President Obama's been a pretty good gun salesman, he and uh, he's really got to do something major to uh, up his sales figures. Yeah, I mean, it's any sales person when you you know raise their requirements, their metrics twenty percent every year. So you get to a point where you just can't make anybody happy. Well, I don't know. You know, Sean, I think we're just going to have to wait and see. Uh, obviously, <laughs> I don't think we're going to have a, a Democrat in the White House in 2016, but it could be wrong. Um, have you ever heard of a Democrat serving from prison? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I mean, I guess there's always a possibility of a precedent, but so uh, we'll see. But, uh, but yeah, ammo, magazines, lowers. You can never have enough of those. So, yeah. eh, might as well stock up. Yeah. When it comes down to it, Sean, buy what you want, when you want it, and can afford it. Don't, don't be unreasonable on that one. Don't, don't wait for it to be gone to decide that you need it, because that means you'll pay three times its actual value in order to get it. So, just, that's all I gotta say on that. Alright. Well, yeah, we've been getting some good feedback on Facebook here. I uh, really appreciate the dialogue. Um, so keep that up. Uh, visit us on Facebook. Visit us uh, on Google+, Plus, where our live broadcasts happen. Uh, the video version of our podcast shows up on YouTube. If you search for the AR-15 podcast, you'll find um, quite a few of our shows and all the recent ones um, recorded for posterity in full HD streaming uh, glory. Um, you can also send us questions or comments to feedback at ar15podcast.com. Uh, our website features the SpeakPipe plugin where you can leave us a recorded voicemail. Um, please subscribe to us uh, on a regular basis here on iTunes or Stitcher, uh, where you can also leave us a review, help other people find the show. Um, share your pictures with us over on Instagram. Uh, you can just tag us at ar15podcast or throw a hashtag in with the same thing. Um, every once in a while when we hit the range, we'll boot up Periscope and let you see live what we're up to. Um, find us there at the same thing, AR15podcast. Um, don't forget about all the other great podcasts on the FRN. If you go firearmsradio.tv, you'll be able to see a index of the shows, uh, see what's going on, and be able to visit some of the affiliate links there on the site. Uh, when you're doing your shopping, uh, if you head over to Brownells by going to ar15podcast.com slash parts uh, before you shop at Brownells, uh, that'll help us stay on the air and uh, pay for the bandwidth that all these shows uh, consume on a regular basis. Um, for everything else, when you visit Amazon, uh, swing by the FRN website or the ar15podcast.com website, click the little Amazon button before you start shopping. And uh, that'll do the same exact thing. It'll help keep us on the air, uh, paying the bills. And, um, yeah, we'll keep this up for, for a long time to come. All right. Well, everybody, 
Thanks for joining us, and we will see you again next week. Stay safe. Have fun, guys. The bandwidth for this episode for the AR-15 podcast is brought to you by Patriot Patch Company. Visit them at patriotpatch.co. The, the president of the Firearms Radio Network wants us to record a commercial for our show. What are we going to do? I don't know, man. It's like uh, I'm freaking out over here. What, what should we do? We could talk about our guests, some of the great people that we've had on the show. Like uh, gun manufacturers, part manufacturers, gun personalities on YouTube, people who write books about guns, TV personalities, all these different things. But I don't know how to put that into words. Yeah. Or the fact that we're funny, but we're informative. I mean, how do we get that out there to the people? I don't even know. It's like, how do you explain that we're going to make you laugh, but we're also going to teach you how to build an AR-15? Yeah, I'm lost on this one, man. We are screwed. I don't know what to do. I mean, if I had to put it into words, I'd say something like uh, you know, a, a hilarious podcast about guns, gear, gadgets, and the issues that affect responsible gun owners everywhere. Howard Stern for the gun world. That's perfect. Hey, if you want to hear it or find it, where do you look? We like shooting.com slash show. I'll be there. I'll be back. Welcome to the We Like Shooting Show, episode 106. This has been a production of the Firearms Radio Network. You can find more information at firearmsradio.tv.